Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we're going to be discussing sacred poetry, how it can lift us up, inspire us, and take us to a deeper understanding of the divine. My guest today is Ivan Granger, the founder and editor of the Poetry Chicana, a publishing house and online resource for sacred poetry from around the world. Ivan is the author of Real Thirst, Poetry of the Spiritual Journey. He's also the editor of the book we'll be discussing today, The Longing in Between, a Poetry Chicana Anthology, and This Dance of Bliss, Ecstatic Poetry from Around the World. Ivan's poetry and translations have been included in several magazines and anthologies. You can learn more about Ivan Granger, his books, and the other books published by Poetry Chicana at his website, poetry-chicana.com. And Chicana is C-H-A-I-K-H-A-N-A. Again, C-H-A-I-K-H-A-N-A, poetry-chicana.com. You can also follow him on Facebook at Poetry Chicana. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Ivan Granger. I'm really delighted you could join me today on the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. So before we begin our dialogue about sacred poetry, let's begin, as we like to here on the Yoga Hour, let's begin with a yoga moment, a moment of being right here and right now. Let's start by just bringing our attention to our body, just feeling our body in space, whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting or standing, walking or driving, just feeling our body. And now bringing our attention to those surfaces that support our weight, feeling our feet. If we're sitting, feeling the part of our weight that's supported in the chair. And then turning our attention to the breath and just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling how now it has been warmed as it has passed through our lungs. And just continuing that way, Focusing on the breath. Here's something to contemplate from Yogacharya O'Brien's book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. Beyond what we say or do, it is ultimately our consciousness that others experience. The consciousness of those who are spiritually awake shines like the sun, giving light and warmth to all. Their presence emanates blessing, and their words have power. 
bring them, being near them is an uplifting reminder of our true nature. Beyond what we say or do, it is ultimately our consciousness that others experience. The consciousness of those who are spiritually awake shines like the sun, giving light and warmth to all. Their presence emanates blessing, and their words have power. Being near them is an uplifting reminder of our true nature. Once again, Ivan Granger, welcome to the Yoga Hour. I am just really delighted to be able to talk with you about your book and about spiritual poetry in general um, and the inspiration that it can bring us. I was reflecting on this this morning in preparation for our talk, and I was realizing that, like everyone, I have dry periods of time in my practice, things that just are feel flat and thinking about well what do you do in those times how do we how do we inspire ourselves and for me spiritual poetry is really a great tool in that toolbox of how we can re-engage in our practice with a, with a more joyful heart so it's really fun to have someone like you on the program that can talk about spiritual poetry about the um about the impact that it can have on us and our practice and the inspiration it can bring. So welcome. Thank you. Uh, hopefully we can bring some good inspiration to this conversation through some of this poetry. Yes, indeed. So I wanted to start uh, where you begin with the introduction in your book and you begin with a short poem by Gabriel Rosenstock that also contributed to the title of your book. Would you read that poem for us? Uh, of course, it's it's a really short poem. It's uh, essentially uh, a haiku, um, and so I've I've uh, got it well committed to memory. And it's these lines: a star, a tree, and the longing in between. A star, a tree, and the longing in between. I just love that. I just absolutely adore that poem. So thank you so much. You, what, What's really nice about your book is you include all of these poems, spiritual poetry from around the world, and then you have a commentary on them. So you write in the introduction, without even formulating a complete sentence, Irish poet Gabriel Rosenstock gives us the whole spiritual endeavor, rootedness and aspiration, life, light, a terrible void, and the aching heart that impels us onward. So poetic, even your commentary, just really beautiful. Would you say more about why you chose The Longing in Between, that poem, as the title to your poetry anthology, and why you chose this poem to begin? Well, I thought this poem just beautifully embodied at its bare essentials, this, uh, this sense of the path of longing. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got just these two um, primal elements of a tree and this star 
And this seemingly unbridgeable gulf or expanse between them uh, that's filled with a longing. Um, but, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about this question of longing uh, in the spiritual journey, uh, and so many spiritual practices will emphasize this, um, uh, both in yogic tradition, particularly in many Sufi uh, schools. Right. Uh, there's a, a real emphasis in longing. And I thought this poem really both embodied that in this essence, but we have um, the sense of longing to me, I, I really is wondering, well, what is this? You know, we tend to approach this idea of longing as being about a lack. We There's something or someone, some experience we want and we don't have, and so we long for it. But in the deepest spiritual sense, that's not quite how it works. You know, longing is really a spectrum. And on one end, there's the longing and the feeling of of yearning for whether it's God or the transcendent uh, or however we define that. And then at the other end of that spectrum is that union or that connection, that wholeness. And it's not that they're separate, but they're connected. There's this um, uh, roadway between them and that roadway that pathway is the spiritual journey that is our journey that's uh that's where we learn to travel we learn that territory uh that it's not so much that they're separated but they're connected by that longing if we mm. want to think of it that way mm. and so and and much of this poetry expresses some aspect of that of both longing and union and so I wanted to really bring all of that together in this one anthology. And I just thought Gabriel Rosenstock's short poem just uh, embodied that so beautifully. And of course, he has that perfect phrase of the longing in between. And so that's why uh, I highlighted it at the beginning. Just really beautiful. Really, really love that. You continue to write in the uh, introduction, you write, each poem in this collection is born of that same longing, the crisis of separation and its resolution. If longing poses the question, then union is the answer. And of course, I just adored that because of course, um, the Sanskrit word yoga, one of the first definitions of yoga is union, is oneness. And so that was just really meaningful to me to think about that. Um, if longing poses the question, then union is the answer. It's just, mm -hmm. it was just gorgeous. And of course, you already commented on that. Did you have anything else you wanted to say? Um, well, the one other thing I would, I would just add, I suppose, is that um, just as yoga is usually uh, translated or understood to mean union, uh, we forget often in the West that even the word religion uh, essentially means union as well, or reconnection, rejoining. Mm. And uh, and so properly understood and expressed religion too is or leads to union as yoga does. And uh, uh, so, uh, you know, again, whichever part of the world, whichever culture or religious tradition uh, we uh, follow, that sense of longing 
and union is really at the heart of it. And we don't want to just think in terms of union, but that longing is an essential part of it. Uh, if we open to our longing, that starts to open the doorway to union. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just really beautifully put. In the book, you write that poetry can better express the sacred than prose. You write, poetry, on the other hand, does not define, it suggests. Where prose describes, poetry allows meaning to gather. I have to read that again because that's so beautiful. Where prose describes, poetry allows meaning to gather. It is this elastic nature that makes poetry well-suited to the sacred, enabling language to relay truth without circumscribing it. Would you say more about that? I just think that's just so beautiful. Of course. Uh, Yeah, this is one of the things that really uh, struck me as I began to work deeply with poetry as an integrated part of spiritual practice. And that's that, you know, the the sacred experience, the um, encountering the numinous or the transcendent is something really beyond words, beyond the capacity of words to properly convey. Um, But of course, as humans in a social environment, we want to communicate, we want to to uh, uh, share something. And we want to also understand, and we tend to, uh, in our mundane consciousness, understand things through words. But the thing is, prose language just doesn't do the best job of that. It it's um, Prose is very, uh, um, we might think of it as a constructive, defining way of using language. Um, it, you kind of are trying to fence in meaning with prose in in these very useful ways that are are very uh, helpful in day to day life, but it, it doesn't do the best job in communicating what is essentially beyond words. So poetry has this element of rather than being a fence containing meaning, it's more of like a magnetic pole that draws meaning to it. And so you can plant that pole of poetry and let let the meaning kind of gather around it. And different people, depending on their their, uh, particular state at that moment, their perspectives and beliefs, their openness, will see uh, a greater or lesser picture in what you say. Some might just see some pretty words and that has its own value, while others may just find in those words uh, the key that unlocks something inside of themselves. You know, And so I, that's one of the things that I just love about poetry in particular is this um, magical quality of, of allowing a meaning to mature in the reader or the listener rather than simply conveying um, these blocks of meaning uh, from one person to another. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, it's just so beautiful, your description of how it kind of um, our relation, it's like a relationship, you know, between ourselves mm. and a poem that develops through time. Yes. So we can see something different in it 
as we as we go forward is not necessarily always something that can happen with prose. So um, anyway, mm-hmm. just really beautiful. I wanted to then uh, have you read uh, a poem from the book. I was very touched by the Navajo prayer that you included, which is on page eight of the book. Would you read yes. that one for us? I'd be happy to. Let me see here. And I was going to say, for me, one of the reasons that I chose it is um, I am a retired physician, uh, retired general internal medicine physician, and this said something to me about healing. And so that's one of the things that drew me uh, to the poem. So we'll talk more about it after you read it. Okay, will do. Dark young pine at the center of the earth originating. I have made your sacrifice, white shell, turquoise, abalone, beautiful, jet, beautiful, fool's gold, beautiful, blue pollen, beautiful, red pollen, pollen, beautiful. Your sacrifice I have made. This day, your child, I have become, I say. Watch over me. Hold your hand before me in protection. Stand guard for me. Speak in defense of me. As I speak for you, speak for me. May it be beautiful before me. May it be beautiful behind me. May it be beautiful below me. May it be beautiful above me. May it be beautiful all around me. I am restored in beauty. 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 Isn't that a wonderful poem? You know, I... You mentioned that it feels very healing to you, and it actually, um, uh, as I understand it, was uh, traditionally an evocation as part of a healing ceremony done before uh, a pine tree. Mm. And um, one of the things that uh, that I think is is healing is, you know, again we've got this image of a tree. Uh, just as in the uh, Gabriel Rosenstock poem. Um, And we have the sense very early on in this poem that this tree, you know, it's at the center of the earth is what we're told. And so that tells us right away that this isn't just one more tree upon the earth, that this is the tree, the world tree, the, the, um, this, uh, it's an archetypal image of tree as, not only life, but as, again, this bridge between earth and heaven, where, um, and at the center of being. So we've got this, this connection happening between the heavenly and the earth, and, and the earthly, it's rooted in the earth, and we're at the, the, the base of that. So we're at the meeting point between that heaven and earth, where they're touching. And that's that's a, a a magical connection. That's where healing occurs, and where we recognize beauty, mm-hmm. and where we recognize a sense of 
our own wholeness. And that's the sense of being restored in beauty, being restored in this uh, right relationship or uh, uh, recognition of, of the interconnection of all things and our uh, aliveness and interconnectedness within it. It's that that wonderful sense of not just evocation of beauty as in you know visual prettiness, but beauty as in the the harmonious whole mm -hmm. and that uh, heavenly and earthly meeting. Mm -hmm. And I love that poem. Yeah, yeah. Me too. <clears throat> um, as I was thinking again about this conversation and about that poem, I was realizing that it was one of the things that was sometimes frustrating to me about practicing within the Western system of medicine, because it was so focused on just like the individual and just mm -hmm. that, you know, person in this poem, as you mentioned, it's really about wholeness and it's about our connection, you know, and, and this, that, you know, that um, the last uh, line that's repeated, you know, for, what is it? Four or five times I am restored in beauty. Yes. And I, and I feel like so often when people leave our medical system, that's not how they feel. <laughs> Even if they're healed, you know, they just, they don't feel that their, you know, connection to the whole is restored. And I don't know, I feel like, you know, Native American healing uh, ceremonies and, and other cultures healing practices do a better job of that perhaps than, you know, than ours, you know, does, which can be kind of mechanical, you know, in a way. So anyway, mm -hmm. I, I just, I loved that, that aspect of it. I am restored in beauty and recognizing that the importance of that, you know, the importance of that part of healing, of making us feel again, that we're part of that whole and restored in beauty. Um, and all those lines, may it be beautiful all around me. I mean, it's just, it's just a really beautiful poem. So thank you so much uh, for reading that. Um, in your book, as we've, we've kind of alluded to, you write a commentary for each poem and describe that as a starting point for our own meditative exploration, as we've talked about, you know, kind of the beginning of our relationship with the poem. You write, I believe that a poem like a dream has layers of meaning and that its meaning can shift over time and when viewed from different perspectives. I was going to ask, how do you recommend that people interact with these poems? What, what, where did they begin and how can they keep, how, how can they keep going? Um, well, yeah, that, you know, that was actually something early on when I started doing the work of the poetry Chaikana, um, you know, I was finding all of this amazing, wonderful poetry, uh, sacred poetry from all of these different world religious and spiritual traditions, uh, much of it that I'd never heard of before and I really wanted to share with people. Uh, but as I started sharing it, I realized that there was a problem with um, people feeling connected to some of the poetry. Like, you know, uh, we, we pick up a, an anthology and, you know, we're not well grounded in uh, poetry, a poetic awareness usually. I mean, we may, in school, we're assined a few uh, poems and uh, and it can feel rather uh, dull often. And, uh, you know, but we don't really have a sense of that poetic awareness. So picking up a, a collection of poetry, it can be very hard for us, even if we're interested, hard for us to really dive into the poem, even one that might... Uh, seem beautiful, we may think, oh, that's beautiful, then we move on. And 
Uh, so I began to start including commentary with a little bit of caution. I didn't want people to think whatever I said about a poem was the one and only meaning, the only way to read a poem, uh, the only way to think about it. Um, but we, you know, we tend to need some doorways into a poem, a way right. to begin to form a relationship or uh, begin to think about it rather than just kind of, you know, read a page or two and then flip the page or close the book and move on. You know, you a, a poem really wants to settle into the consciousness and percolate there for a while, you know? So um, there, so one of the things I, I do is try to bring some commentary that can suggest one way of reading it and a way of beginning to think about it, but hopefully in a way that draws you into really rereading it and thinking about it and, uh, and letting your own sense and feelings uh, emerge. I tend to think of when, when there's a poem that really connects in some way, I like to do a few things uh, to, to deepen that awareness. Um, one is uh, sometimes I'll, I'll memorize a poem uh, and uh, that's not something, again, we're, we're taught to do too much and it can feel rather rote if you do it in this um, just forced way. But when it's a poem that really speaks to you, memorizing it can allow you to internalize it and, and uh, uh, recite it or think about it uh, as a kind of this personal intimate friend. So that's one thing. The other thing that's important in my opinion is um, saying a poem out loud. You know, uh, we, we're so um, book oriented these days that we'll read a poem silently and think that's the, the whole of it. And poems fundamentally are meant to be spoken. They're, uh, they're verbal a verbal art, not a written art, primarily. And, you know, modern poetry, you, you know, there is more of a consciousness or awareness of the written form, certainly. But at the, at the core, a poem is a verbal uh, uh, art. And I like to think of it this way, that a poem represents the, well, we can think of the spoken word as being uh vibration carried on the breath and and uh and so a poem carries the rhythm of that that breath from the original poet to you and by speaking it aloud you're re replicating that that rhythm of breath from the poet and of course uh you know from yogic practice or other spiritual practices we know that the the breath working with the breath also profoundly affects consciousness and awareness. And so by reciting a poem aloud, especially a, a sacred poem, something that touches on something transcendent or meaningful, by saying that aloud, you're participating in the rhythm of the breath of the original poet. So if that is a, a visionary poet or a saintly person, um, uh, a, a holy person or just an inspiring person, we get to participate in their breath in some basic way, which allows us to take on a certain amount, a, a certain sense of their uh, consciousness, the rhythm of their awareness. Right. 
and that's one of the reasons that I chose the reading that I chose at the beginning from Yogacharya O'Brien. She talks about that, about, you know, experiencing other people's consciousness, you know, and how yes. the importance, you know, of, of experiencing that. As a reminder to our listeners, my guest today on the Yoga Hour is Ivan Granger, the founder and editor of the Poetry Chaikana, a publishing house and online resource for sacred poetry from around the world. Ivan is also editor of the book we are discussing today, The Longing in Between, a Poetry Chaikana Anthology. You can learn more about Ivan Granger and the other books published by Poetry Chaikana on their website, poetry-chaikana.com. And Chaikana, again, is chai, like the beverage, C-H-A-I, and then kana, K-H-A-N-A, poetry-chaikana.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via our website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list, and we will have the link to Poetry Chaikana on our website, so you can check that out. Um, Yogacharya O'Brien, as you know, Ivan, um, she is a poet. She's the founder of this podcast, and yes. you have included some of her poetry on your website, on the Poetry Chaikana website. I wanted to have a chance to read one of her poems from her book of poetry, which is called The Moon Reminded Me. Om is the title of this poem, and Om is a Sanskrit word that means the word, the eternal, the divine power that brings everything into expression. So here is her poem, Om. Which comes first? Ocean or rain, fire or wood, scent of water or trees bursting into bloom, lover who is lost or beloved who finds. You are the ocean drinking in the rain that you yourself have made. You are the fire in the wood. You are the scent of water and the trees bursting into bloom. Fire lives in water, as darkness lives in everything green, as time slips out of eternity. A luminous thread connects lover and beloved. Prayer beads travel on it, chanting the name Om. Om, that is everything. So this poem speaks to me in many ways. There's so many parts of this poem that I am moved by. I love the part where she asks the question, which comes first, ocean or rain, fire or wood, scent of water or trees bursting into bloom. And those pairs, to me, give us a wonderful feeling of the relationship of things, the circularity of things relating to each other and turning into each other. And mm -hmm. then in this list, she includes lover who is lost or beloved who finds. And something about that coming at the end of these pairs feels reassuring to me as sometimes feeling lost that the other part of the puzzle, the beloved who finds is also there in that moment. So that's what it means to me. Yeah. Yeah, that I 
there's very much that that wonderful sense of interconnection again that we tend to uh, superficially think of these separations uh, and um, uh, and then hopefully some sort of reunion but uh, but the poem itself seems to be suggesting that ultimately there never really was that separation there's already that inherent union and yeah, yeah that's it's lovely. Yeah. And I love that image of them being connected. And then on that string of connection, there's these prayer beads, you know, that are yes, there on that exactly. Line. Yes. Really, really beautiful. So you, um, your, your website and the book um, has this word Chicana, Chicana.com. So what does that word mean? What does the word Chicana mean? That's yeah, it's it's a bit of a challenging word for for Westerners sometimes, I know. Um uh there's so as you mentioned, um chai comes from the beverage, chai or tea. Um, and a chaikana literally means a tea house. It's it's a word from uh Central Asia, like the region we call the the Silk Road region. Um, they would have chaikanas or tea houses, and um on the one hand, uh, superficially, I liked it because it, you know, the Silk Road is this kind of region of connection across all of Asia and even into Europe. Um, and uh, Chaikana would be these uh, resting points along the way where you would get merchants, but also um, uh, pilgrims traveling, coming together, resting, sharing stories and uh, um, uh, enjoying their their chai, their tea. But it was also further inspired by this uh, wonderful Sufi story uh, I read uh, a while back uh, about how uh, he uses this metaphor of chai that or or tea that that uh, real tea had been lost in um, the uh, in the the known world. And they just had stories about tea. What is this tea? And and um, you know, educated people debated about what tea was, what color it was. Is it brown or is it green or black? Uh, what does it taste like? Is it bitter? Is it sweet? Um, you know. And uh, another uh, uh, area had one single bag of tea, and they they worshipped it. Um, and then finally, a wise man comes among them and says, you're all fools. What you need to do is uh, drop that bag in hot water. And they, they saw him as a heretic, you know, for uh, because he wasn't showing proper reverence for their their one bag of tea. Um, and then then this kind of uh, secret underground movement starts where the true initiates, they get a hold of, of tea through secret uh, channels and uh, they, in secret, boil the tea and prepare it and sip it. And um, these true initiates know what real tea is, and they set up their chaikanas, their tea houses, to share this um, this secret drink of tea. Wow. And so, uh, so I, I just love that kind of uh, that that story. And so I brought that into the name, uh, the poetry chaikana. Mm. It it feels very convivial. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yes. Nice. Yeah. 
In one of your commentaries, you, um, you write about mystics and you write, the mystic maps the territory between the soul and God, between lover and beloved, between the little self and the true self, between the trans transitory and the eternal. The road connecting these is the road of longing. Mysticism is the science of longing. I just, I just, again, I just, even in your prose writing, you're very poetic and it's very beautiful. You say that you prefer to call the poets whose poetry that you share in the book, you prefer to call them mystics. Would you describe what you understand a mystic to be? Of, of course, yeah. I do tend to use the word mystic uh, most often, and I use it in the broad sense where, you know, if I refer to a saint, for example, that can be a really loaded term for many people, uh, or it might suggest that it applies to certain traditions specifically. Uh, and a sage can, um, if you use a term like sage, that can sound like someone who's emotionally uh, removed or dry, maybe an older person might suggest a man rather than a woman. Um, and I was trying to find a more... Um, embracing universal term and mystic is is one that that i that i like because to me it suggests someone who is deeply engaged with the mystery whether that is god or awareness or the self and it doesn't necessarily suggest anything specific about religious tradition or um, gender or uh, ethnicity, culture, any of that. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, it, it seems much more free term, uh, and uh, but it gets to the, the heart of things. And one of the other things I like about the um, the sense of a mystic is. Um, even a, a very orthodox religious person who sees themselves as a mystic, they're going to have a really unique relationship to their religious tradition. They're not going to be just interested in uh, just following the rules or the prescribed rituals in and of themselves. They may uh, consider those to be very important part of their pathway and practice uh, and have a lot of reverence for that. But they tend to see them not as an end in themselves, but as a, a means or a signpost leading them to their goal. And, you know, so a mystic is by definition, someone who is looking for the, the living part of things, of their religious tradition and of reality and being in general. And, and so they're not going to be satisfied with simple dogma. Right. Um, they're going to, they, they want the direct experience. They don't want to, as they say, talk about the sugar. They want to taste the sugar. Yeah. And so mystics aren't very good dogmatists, but, but they do tend to, uh, 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 because of this dynamic relationship, they do tend to make, in my opinion, very good poets. Uh, and they make good ambassadors for their uh, their particular tradition. However, a mystic can be someone who is, you know, essentially a secular person too, right. you know. And uh, so, uh, anyway, I, I like this term mystic because it's uh, very uh, 
open term that can really apply to uh, anyone who's deeply engaged in that uh, sense of the mystery and truth. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, we're one of the things I really wanted to do is include more poetry. So maybe it's time for another poem. Would, do you have one that you would like to share? I do. Um, this is one that uh, has just been a longtime favorite of mine um, by the Spanish poet Antonio Machado. And um, this is, it's a fairly well-known poem. Uh, and so people may have read uh, other translations of this, um, but this is one that just really speaks to me. And as you were saying with some of the other poems, this is one that feels profoundly healing and, and uh, restorative to me. Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt, blessed vision, that a fountain flowed here in my heart. I said, why, O oh water, have you come along this secret waterway, spring of new life, which I have never tasted? Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt, blessed vision, that I had a beehive here in my heart. And the golden bees were making from all my old sorrows white wax and sweet honey. Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt blessed vision. A blazing sun shone here in my heart. It was blazing because it gave heat from a red home. And it was sun because it gave light and because it made me weep. Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt, blessed vision, that it was God I had here in my heart. Antonio Machado. Wow, that's really beautiful. And again, we have this sense of, of um, kind of here where we're returning again and again to the heart, and uh, we've got this this sense of uh, a profound opening, you know, within that, you know, there's there's life uh, in his heart and and warmth and sweetness. We've got honey, you know, we've got a, a waterway, a fountain, uh, and ultimately he rec recognizes it as. God there within his heart. Yeah. I love that part when you got to the beehive and the, you know, turning all of his experiences, you know, into white wax and sweet honey. That was really beautiful. Yes. Yes. That's one of my favorite lines too. I, I agree. Really lovely. One of the things you write about in the book is the value of metaphor in describing the indescribable. Could you comment about that a little bit? Yes. So um, in our normal mundane awareness, we uh, at best tend to think in terms of simile. You know, this thing is like that, or this person is like that. And um, and if we use metaphor, it tends to be more of a 
uh, a literary device. It's it's um, a kind of a pretense, you might say. And uh, I, um, uh, but again, taking this towards the uh, the sacred practitioner, the the mystic, you know, in those states of profound communion where we start to perceive uh, a sort of a grand wholeness and uh, a fluid interconnectedness with everything, we have this um, perception where metaphor is no longer a pretense or a game of poetic words. It's actually perceived reality. Mm. We, when in our uh, most uh, profound states of awareness, we perceive in metaphor, not in simile, to put it in that those terms. And so this is what visionary poetry comes from. It comes from the metaphor of those moments of awakening or insight, of recognizing that everything is in everything else, everything that there is a participation in everything by everything, this holistic vision of reality. That's what real metaphor is. And that's why um, the, the deepest poetic traditions often become spiritual practices because you're looking for that moment. You don't want to just come up with a nice play on words. You want that direct perception of the interconnectedness from which real metaphor emerges, and then your poetry comes from that. So um, uh, I, I apologize, I forget exactly how you framed the, the question to start, but that's what I think of when I think of as metaphor, is that that visionary sense or metaphor emerging from the, the experience of the sacred. Yeah, that was a great answer. You, man, you answered it beautifully. <laughs> So I thought I'd share one other of Yogacharya O'Brien's poems, and this one you include on the website, your, <clears throat> yes. um, uh, your website. The title Satsanga is a Sanskrit word meaning a gathering of devotees or a gathering of truth seekers. So here is Yogacharya O'Brien's poem Satsanga. In late afternoon, wind and redwoods get together to talk about the ocean. They are remembering mist that arrived before dawn, call it manna or grace. The trees make a vow to stand all night so they won't miss it. Mm. I don't know what it is about that one, but I just love this vision of the trees and the wind getting together to talk about the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> it is wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. There's there's also a um, kind of an underlying sense of stillness that I really like in that as well. You know, this kind of patience of wading through the night uh for the for the new arrival yes yeah yeah i loved in the afterword in your book where you write through poetry 
the illuminated state becomes contagious. Again, the, through poetry, the illuminated state becomes contagious. Poetry has an immediate effect on the mind. The simple act of reading poetry alters thought patterns and the shuttle of the breath. Poetry induces trance. Its words are chant. Its rhythms are drumbeats. Its images become the icons of the inner eye. Sacred poetry is more than a description of the sacred experience. It carries the experience itself. So I think when you were talking about the experience of metaphor, um, you were alluding to the same thing. Did you want to say more about you know what i just read i i just love the way you said you know it it uh the illuminated state becomes contagious through poetry that's just such a beautiful beautiful uh thing to think about um yes i you know that i always try to approach uh poetry uh, the, the, particularly this sort of sacred visionary poetry with that awareness that a poem is not just conceptual. It's not just um, uh, uh, a picture uh, uh, painted before our eyes, but there's, there's something essential being conveyed through that poem. And uh, the more we really open ourselves to that poem, the more we let it rest in our awareness and uh, vibrate on our tongue, uh, the more it kind of works as sort of inner alchemy upon us. Uh, and it it just sort of unfolds and unfolds within our own awareness. And, uh, and we can discover something of the, that, that spark of the sacred within the poem itself just waiting for us to um, be ready to receive it, if you want to put it that way. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, so the, that sense of we've got rhythm, we've got imagery, we've got um, rhyme, uh, we've got uh, all of these uh, elements working on the, uh, the, the inner awareness that um, kind of just you might say kind of reprogram it. You could, you could say it, it's, it's almost like it, it induces trance, but in the highest sense or the, the purest sense of trance, it, uh, it, it allows us to um, open or step outside of our, our set tracks of thinking and perceiving when, when we really do that. Of course, to really work, uh, it's magic most effectively. We want to not only be, as I've said, kind of open, but to cultivate a, an inner quiet. The more uh, we have a sense of stillness and quiet within, the more uh, the the mind uh, is like a, a a blank page that can receive that that new uh, writing, those those new words, and and have them really imprint effectively. Uh, but yeah, it's it's worth approaching. Next time you have a poem and you or you read it and say, "Wow, what was that?" You know, come back to it and uh, and and really say maybe there's something 
uh, wrapped up inside there that if I kind of unwrap it a little more or allow it to unfold, uh, it, it may reveal even more than just that little spark of something special that it might just really blossom into something uh, really special. Mm. Why don't we take time for one more poem? Yes. You wanna share one with us? Uh, okay, yes, let's see here. I uh, have one here. This is a relatively brief one um, by uh, the poet Boule Shah called One Thread Only. One thread, one thread only. Warp and woof, quill and shuttle, countless cloths and colors, a thousand hanks and skeins, with 10,000 names, 10,000 places. But there is one thread only. I, I like that that image of, you know, just I, I picture uh, this rich uh, tapestry, a multicolored cloth that's all woven together. Uh, and we'll see, uh, you know, different colors or shapes on different part of the cloth and another. And we see them as separate things. And uh, I, I think I say in my commentary something like we we mentally cut it apart. Uh, into separate swatches. But when we're really paying attention, we we see that despite this beautiful visual diversity, there's still just that one thread going through it all. And it's, so it becomes this, this wonderful uh, image of the, the unity of, of existence or being uh, even amidst all the apparent differences and diversity. Yeah. No, that was beautiful. I really enjoyed that. Well, unbelievably, we've come to the end of our time. Mm -hmm. uh, we always like to have a chance at the end for you to share any words of inspiration or encouragement with uh, our listeners. So what, what words of inspiration or encouragement would you like to leave? Let's see. Well, you know, with work at working with poetry, that, that word inspiration comes up a lot. Uh, and um, and it sometimes means something different to uh, um, to poets, uh, particularly poets who see themselves as doing poetry as part of an expression of their spiritual process. And um, it's worth remembering, I think, that poets often seek inspiration as as something essential, that inspiration is not just something, oh, it would be nice to have, it would help us get through our day, or um, or if you are an artist working with something, inspiration will just help you put that extra special something into it. But inspiration is more fundamental than that. Inspiration is really uh, about the flow of life and the as, as we said earlier, where the heavenly meets the mundane, that meeting point is where inspiration bursts forth. And, and we need that. We, it's, it's, it's essential food for the spirit. And uh, so I would say more than just seeking 
just a little inspiration to, to help us through that really seeking inspiration should be a part of our, our daily practice. We should feed ourselves regularly, daily with inspiration. Oh, wonderful advice. Thank you. For listeners, we've come to the end of the show. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of The Yoga Hour. My guest today has been Ivan Granger. He is editor of the book we've been discussing today, The Longing in Between, Sacred Poetry from Around the World. You can find out more about Ivan Granger and his books at his website, poetry-chaikana.com. And again, Chaikana is Chai, C-H-A-I, and then K-H-A-N-A.com, poetry-chaikana.com. This link will also be on our webpage at theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Ivan Granger, for joining me today on The Yoga Hour. I have found it to be quite an inspiring conversation. Oh, thank you. I've loved it. For listeners, we hope that you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the sponsor of this program, the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. There is daily online meditation in the morning at 6.30 a.m., in the afternoon at 4 p.m., and Monday evenings at 7.30 p.m. All those times are Pacific time. There's also a Sunday satsang, a gathering of truth seekers, at 10 a.m. Pacific each week. Yogacharya O'Brien, who we've mentioned a few times today, has a YouTube channel, Ellen Grace O'Brien. She also has a website, ellengraceobrien.com, and another podcast called Kriya Yoga Today, where you can find presentations from her classes and prior talks that she has given. You can access this through the CSE website at csecenter.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, that's Kriya Yoga Today. Yogacharya O'Brien will be leading the upcoming Kriya Yoga Meditation Retreat, which is happening June 25th, sorry, 22nd to 25th, this 2023. It is offered both online and in person at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when my guest will be Phil Goldberg, author of the books American Veda and The Life of Yogananda. Our conversation will focus on Yogananda and his book, The Autobiography of a Yogi. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember to subscribe to the Yoga Hour podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, Christine Sote, and Lauren Leidinger. We look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.